and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let the heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. And I know we read those words there in verses 35 and 36, and we may hear Zion and Judah, and we may think that that has nothing to do with us, but notice how the psalm ends. Those who love his name shall dwell in it. I think that broadens the promise beyond just Jewish folks to everybody who loves the name of the Lord. Every believer in Christ, this is a promise that includes God's old covenant people, but does not... uh, uh, does not leave out his new covenant people. So if you love the name of God, you can claim these promises here this morning that God will, uh, will bless you and, and, and uh, we should worship him for that this morning. Will you pray with me? <clears throat> Father, we rejoice at your word and we hear its call to us this morning to praise our God. And so as we gather here this morning, Lord, we, we want to do that. We want to be obedient Lord, as I was reading earlier today, I was in, in the Psalms and, and, uh, in a different portion and just recognizing that the psalmist repeatedly asked you for help to, to open his eyes to see things from your word and to incline his heart to you and to give understanding of the things that your word teaches. And so God, thinking of that and, and thinking of the, the verses that we just read here together, I, I just want to make that the prayer this morning that you would open our minds and our hearts and our mouths, God, that we would worship and praise you because the, the verses in Psalm 119 were about learning and, and understanding your word. And God, we pray for that experience when we preach. As, we're, as the word is being preached and taught, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds and incline us, God, because even seeing, sometimes we don't enjoy or savor or, or become satisfied in what we read and what we clearly understand with the mind. And so the psalmist recognizes that and says, God, don't just grant that we would get what the point is, but help us to savor that point like the, 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 the glorious taste of of steak that just melts in your mouth or like ice cream that just so satisfies that hunger god help us to love and 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 become satisfied in your word like the things that of this world that satisfy us god help us to 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 have those cravings met by by coming to your word this morning but god in anticipation of you speaking so plainly and so clearly and satisfying our souls so well with your word Help us to praise you. Help us to worship you. God, not just in anticipation for what we pray and and believe you will do through your word, but God, looking back over past blessings, past privileges, past graces, past deliverances, past healings, God, past encouragements, we exalt in you, our God. We exult in you and you are worthy to be praised because you rescue your people. You prepare a place for your people. You you build up what's been broken down and restore things for your people because you were gracious and glorious and kind and we praise and, and, and honor your name. But God, we ask for help to do that because we recognize that we come in here burdened and, and broken and distracted and uh, sometimes we come in and we just feel muted, God, like we, we, we're in the room, but we, we're just, we can't break out. And so we pray that whatever we come in here with, that we would be able to lose ourselves in the worship of you. We pray that you would incline our hearts even to that, because worshiping you is not the natural inclination of the human heart. 
So God, give us grace this morning to do that, to overcome the sinful desires, to make much of ourselves. Lord, rather let us make much of you. And our prayer is that in praising and worshiping you, that others would see and savor Christ, that our children would look up and see moms and dads opening their mouths, praising God, that they would hear our voices as we sing truth, and that that truth, God, would bring conviction to our children, to our, to our, our, even our toddlers, God, as they begin to learn concepts about God through songs that mommies and daddies sing as we worship you this morning. God, open even our children's ears and their hearts and help them, God, to get the gospel through our worship because that's probably more memorable for them, God, than the sermon. So help us not to diminish or, or downplay the gospel in song because that's probably one of the first ways our kids encounter your truths. And God, we, we, want, to, we want to participate in that and we want our kids to see us worshiping you so that they know they also ought to worship you. Help us to do those things for your glory, for our soul satisfaction, and for the salvation of our children. We ask it, O oh God, in Christ's name. Amen. Let's have our ushers come forward this morning for our offering. I do want to encourage you as, as they can come each week, we talk about giving and, and the need for, for giving and, and what's going on. Uh, I will mention that this past Wednesday night we did vote. Uh, we talked about, as we mentioned, um, when we passed our budget, that we may need to make some adjustments to that. And this past Wednesday night, we, we did that. And unfortunately, we had to cut some of our missions giving uh, because we're consistently coming under under our budget. And so I share that with you just to, to encourage you, uh, um, for those who are giving, to continue to give. For those uh, who are not faithfully giving, that, that you might be spurred on to giving um, because of that, that reality. So pray with me this morning. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we know that you will meet every one of our needs. We, we trust you, O oh God, to do that. Uh, we pray that you would do that. Lord, we know that so often you do meet the needs uh, of your people in terms of financial through, through the giving. You meet the needs of your church through the giving of, of your people. And I, I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be generous, um, that you would help us, as your word says, to honor you with the first fruits. Uh, of, of our income, Lord God. Um, we pray for the missionaries that we support. We pray for the work that, that goes on here, uh, that you would sustain it and, and even increase it. And uh, we, we ask all of this in the name of Christ. Amen. All right, take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of 1 John. 1 John, we're going to be concluding our series here, kind of bringing it to an end at the beginning. Uh, we're in 1 John chapter 1. Uh, and verses 1 through 4, and uh, we're going to talk this morning about the, the Son of God. First John chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. 
When we come to the Bible, it's important to remember that the Bible is a, a revelation of God. It's a self-revelation. God is revealing himself, both his character and his work. So when you read the Bible, you should read the Bible in a God-centered kind of way. That, that means you should not read it in a way that always puts yourself or really anything else as the primary subject. Don't, don't read the Bible as a self-help book meant to just give you a better marriage or help you handle your finances better or help you overcome addiction or help you parent better. Um, one of the tendencies of the church in our day and time is that Christianity really has, has become all about uh, us helping ourselves. One, one person referred to Christianity uh, in, in our day and time as moralistic therapeutic deism. In other words, there's some morals, which we like, and there's therapy. It helps us straighten our lives up, and it's deistic with some kind of loose version of God that has morality and helps you be a better person. And man, if that doesn't fit the, the church in our day and time, we're, we're not really concerned with truly knowing God. Uh, we want some morals. We want a little spirituality, and we want to fix everything that's messed up in our lives. And that's how we tend to read the Bible. But we shouldn't read it that way. It's, it's a revelation about God. God is telling us about himself. Have you ever talked to somebody and you're trying to tell them a story about something that happened in your life and they keep interrupting and kind of interject, interjecting? Oh, yeah, that reminds me of the time that happened in my life. And, and, this, and they always somehow manage to twist and kind of turn the conversation back to them. They're always the subject of, of the conversation. Well, that's the way we read the Bible sometimes. God is saying, hey, this is who I am, and this is what I've done, and we're always just looking to twist it back to us so that we can get back to fixing our problems. When I say that the Bible is a, a story about God, it's a revelation of God, I'm, I'm talking about the triune God of the Bible, Father, Son, and, and Holy Spirit. That's what we see how God reveals himself in, in Scripture. So when you read the Bible, you should primarily be asking yourself this question, what does this text or this passage or this book what does it tell me about God either father son or holy spirit as we think about the various themes in in the book of first John I want to end with what I would say really is the chief and primary primary theme of first of John and that is God the son the word son is used 22 times uh, in in first John Jesus, the, the title or the name Jesus, is used 12 times. Christ is used eight times. And then other than, than the names or, or titles, there, there are, or rather than, other than the names, there are titles like the righteous one, and there are pronouns of him and his that all refer to Jesus. Uh, but it's more than just merely doing a, a vocabulary count. The, the whole emphasis of this book is really written to combat false ideas about Jesus the Son with the truth of, of who he really is. I, I would dare say it's hard to find a passage in the book of 1 John in, in which Jesus is not the subject that, about which he's speaking. And so this morning we want to look at that theme and we want to allow the Holy Spirit of God to speak to us and to reveal his son, to, to reveal the son to us, to reveal Jesus to us. And we don't want to interrupt that. And we don't want to interject our, our own thoughts. We simply want to listen to God as he reveals his son to us. Who is the son of God? And you might be tempted right now 
to think, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to just check out because this isn't going to be a very practical sermon. It isn't, it's going to be about theology, uh, so it isn't going to be very helpful to me in my everyday life. But let, let me just suggest to you, again, first of all, maybe, maybe the Bible isn't all about you, and maybe that's a good thing. Maybe you need to know something of what God is like. Uh, but, but more than that, let, let me suggest to you that it is very practical. It's through knowing the Son of God. It's through knowing who the Son of God is and having a right understanding and a right faith in Him that you come to know God Himself and have fellowship. You have a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Is that practical for you? Do, do you want to know God? Do you want to have a relationship with the Creator of this universe the way that you do that? is through knowing and believing in his son. That's practical. It's through knowing and believing in his son that we have eternal life. All of us want, want life. One of the realities as we had Ken's memorial service for all of us is that this life is coming to an end. We, we all desire to live longer. We all desire life, and, and yet it's, it's running out. But, but the promise is that through knowing Jesus Christ, the son of God, that we have eternal life. It's through knowing the Son that our sins are cleansed and, and forgiven. Do you want God to forgive your sins? Do you want to stand in a right relationship with him? Well, that's, that comes through knowing and believing in the Son of God. So this is very much a practical issue for you in, in your life. So let's just jump in. We're going to look primarily at this passage, be drawing from some others as well. But who is the Son of God? How does he reveal himself in, in the book of 1 John? And, and the first thing that we see is that the Son is truly divine and truly human. He's truly divine and he's truly human. Let's just jump into these verses and I think we can see several things. The first thing that we see is that the one who's the Son is from the beginning. That which was from the beginning. Now John sometimes uses that word beginning to talk about the beginning of the ministry of, of Jesus and, and the apostles, like the, the message that you heard from the beginning, meaning when Christ was here. But, but oftentimes he also uses the word beginning to talk about where most people's minds who know their Bible well would, would go to, and that is the beginning of time, the, the beginning of, of creation. And I think that's what he's talking about. When he, when he says here that which was from the beginning, he's talking about the Son, and he's saying that the Son is from the beginning, and, and I interpret this, and if you're questioning that, I interpret this mainly through the lens of, of John 1. The Gospel of John was written by, by John as well, and this is what John says in John 1.1, in his introduction to his Gospel. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's that, that same idea of being in the beginning. Again, he's called the Word, and it says the Word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So when John, after writing his, his gospel, and then he writes this, this letter, uh, and he introduces these same things, he says that which was from the beginning. In, in the reader's mind, this is clearly a reference to, to the Son of God, and it's clearly a reference to the beginning of time, to, to creation, because that's what he's referring to in John 1.1, he says he was in the beginning with God, that which was from the beginning. And we see this in, in verse 1, he says, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. 
the, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to you and proclaimed to you the eternal life. Listen to this, which was with the Father. This life, this word that he was talking about in the beginning was with the Father. That's the same expression that, that is used in John. So when he talks about the beginning and he talks about the, the word or the son being with the Father in the beginning, he's, he's clearly referencing uh, creation. What this means then for the Son of God is that, that the Son of God pre-existed the, the creation order. In other words, like the Father, the Son too stands outside of creation. If you go back to the beginning, if you go back to the beginning when God says in the beginning he, he spoke and he created the heavens and the earth, you go back to the beginning. What do you see in the beginning? There's nothing there other than God, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, that which was from the beginning. The Son is from the beginning, which means he is not part of this created realm. Secondly, we, we see not only is he from the beginning, but the Son is the Word. You see that again in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have looked upon with our eyes, which we have touched with our hands concerning the Word of life. That, that word, Word, is the same one that's used in, in John chapter 1 where he says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. What, why does he call the son of God the word of God? What does that mean? What, what is, why is that a title that John would give to the son of God that he's the word? What, what does that mean? Well, well, we know what a word is, right? When we speak, we're revealing ourselves. The only way that you know anything about me very much at all is when I speak and I tell you who I am. I tell you about myself. I reveal myself to you. And, and that's what we see when God speaks in the Bible. When it talks about the word of God, it is God revealing himself. So even in creation, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And how does he do it? He speaks. He speaks a word and through, through speaking a word, he creates the world. And, and the world is a revelation of, of him. We talk about general revelation, but then throughout the Old Testament, we see the prophets speaking as well. All, they would introduce their, their uh, messages and they would say, the word of the Lord came to me. The word of the Lord came to me. In other words, God has spoken to me. He's revealed to me his will and, and his character, his mind in this situation. In all of these instances, when God speaks, he is revealing himself. He's making himself known. And so when it says that the Son of God is the word of life, this, this means that the Son is the revelation. It is the, he is the expression of God himself. The word is the, the perfect and the most complete revelation of the father. That's why when Jesus comes as the son of God, what does he say to his disciples? F Philip says in John 14, I just read that at the, the memorial service yesterday. Philip says to, to Jesus, just show us the father and it'll be enough. Let us see God. Give us a revelation of the father. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, Philip have you been so long with me and you don't know? If you have seen me, you've seen the Father because I'm the Word. I'm the revelation. I'm the expression of God in physical form, in, in hum, human form. 
four, that's John 14, 8 to 11. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. We see this also in, in John 10, 30, where, where he says, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. So when, when John calls Jesus or calls the Son the Word of God, he's saying that, that the Son is the expression, is the revelation of God's character. Do you want to know what God is like? God has revealed himself. He's revealed himself in his word. It's his revelation of himself. He's, he's spoke this world into existence. He's revealed him certain things about himself in this world, in, in his word. But then finally, in the one who is the word, who is, is a, a, a living word, the, the son of God. And so he's the revelation of God. Jesus, the son is the word of God. And then thirdly, we see in this passage that the son is eternal. The son is eternal. We see this in verse one. He says it refers to him as the word of life. And then in verse two, it says this life was manifested and and revealed. And we now proclaim to you the eternal life. So he calls the son the word, which is the revelation of God, the expression of who God is. But then he calls him life. John chapter 5 verse 11, uh, it says that eternal life is in the son. Chapter 5 verse 20 says he is the true God, talking about the son, he is the true God and eternal life. This this is a term which clearly shows us the deity of, of Jesus Christ because God is the one who's life. God is the one who is Life. You see, God, God doesn't derive his life from anyone else. All of us have life. We, we all possess life, but, but it's not something we possess in ourselves. You, you've been given life from God. You've derived it, and at a certain time, that life is going to come to an end. You, you, you derive your life, and, and there's a limit to it. But with God, who, who does God derive life from? He, de- he derives life from no one. In him is life. He is life. He is eternal life. And so when it says that the son is life and that the son is eternal life, this means that the same thing is true of the son. He's fully God. He's not created. He didn't come into existence at any point. He didn't derive his life. He is life. In him is life. He's eternal life. God is life and and in him is the source of life we we all derive our life from God but God derives his life from no one he possesses life in himself the son that is and he's the source of life for for everyone else listen to John 1 3 and 4 speaking of the word again the the son of God all things were made through him all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made in him was life and the life was the light of men. You see, the Son of God made all things, and the reason he made all things is because in him was life. He's the source of life. What this means then about the Son of God, he's the perfect revelation, the expression of, of who God is. He, he is uh, eternal, and he is the source of life. The Son of God then is, is not part of the created order. He was already with the Father at the beginning. The Son is the perfect revelation of God. He's the flawless expression of God's character and being. The Son is life. He possesses life in himself in an underived and limitless way. 
All of this makes it, makes it clear that when we speak of the Son, we're speaking of one who is fully divine and not a created being. The Son of God is truly divine. So you might be with me so far, but the, the remarkable and astounding reality is that this Son of God who stood outside of time, who stood outside of the created order, entered into this realm by taking on true humanity. So not only is the Son truly divine, but he's also truly and fully human. And we see this in John, again, in, the, in these verses. First of all, in verse 2, it says that the, the life was made manifest. The life was revealed. This one who was eternal, this one who was there at the beginning, has now been manifested. That word just means something that hasn't been seen before, has now been seen. It's been revealed. And so the Son of God, the, the life, the Word of God that was there at the beginning, has now been Revealed And what, what kind of manifestation, what kind of revelation of the Son is this? Well, you see in, in verse 1 that it's clearly a physical and tangible revelation. Because what does John say? Read it again. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John is saying, hey, this one, the Son of God, the Word, the one whose life, who was there at the beginning, guess what? I, as an apostle, I've, I've seen him. And I've looked at him. And I've, I've heard him speak. And, and it wasn't even just a vision that I could hear and, and, and that I could hear and see. Let me get my uh, illustration there, right? It wasn't something that I could just hear and see, but it was actually physical. He, he had a human body. I was able to touch him and, and to be with him. So what he's saying is that this one who's eternal, the son of God, has entered into this realm and has taken on true humanity. This is actually one of the central issues in this letter. Did the son of God really become truly human? Could the one who created all things and stands outside of creation, could he really enter into creation? Could the one who has infinite life ever enter into a realm of death and take on a corruptible body to himself? Could the one who is eternal life take a body that is able to die? That, that's what we're preaching. That's what John is saying. That's what we believe as Christians, what we are confessing as, as followers of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He was the one, he's God, who was there at the beginning, the very the very revelation of God, one with the Father, and yet he entered into time and space and he took on a true physical body. The Son of God took on full humanity and true humanity. This is what John says again in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh. Remember he says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. But now in verse 14, he says, and the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. John's saying, I'm an apostle. I was there. I've seen him. I've heard him. I've looked at him. I've touched him with my hands. Real physical body. The word of God, the son of God from eternity past became flesh and dwelt among us. The son is this is the man. Christ Jesus, the Son, the one who's the Word and whose life is a man. 
whose name is Jesus Christ. We see that in again in 1 John chapter 1. I, have your, I hope you have your Bibles open there because we'll just keep referring back to it. He says in verse 3, That which we have seen and heard proclaimed to you so that you, may t- you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. That's his title of deity. He's the Son of God. But he, you notice he tacks this on, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That's his earthly name. That's the name that Jesus received as, as a human being. John is saying, look, this is, this is what we're testifying to you. This is the theme of our letter. This is what this is all about. This, the, the Son of God who eternally existed before creation has entered into creation. He's taken on a human body and his name is Jesus and he is the Christ. He's the Messiah. And that's what we're proclaiming to you. That's who Jesus is. So the question for you this morning, this is, a, this is essential, Christianity 101. Do you believe this? Do you believe it's one thing to say, well, I believe in God, right? A lot of people believe in God. But, but do you believe that God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And do you believe that God sent his Son into the world? That, that God, the one who spoke this world into, into being, the, the, the one who stands outside of time, do you believe that he has entered into this world and taken on a true human form and that he died for us? This is, this is what... We confess as Christianity. This is the essence of Christianity. So much so that John is very clear that anyone who doesn't confess this, this truth that I've just laid out to you, does not know God and is not from God. Listen to John 4, 1 through 3. This is 1 John 4, 1 through 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. How do you know the Spirit of God? Because every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. This is the essential confession of Christianity, that Jesus, the Son of God, has truly come in the flesh. Do you confess that this morning? The flesh here means clearly a a physical body. And so this this is essential for us. The first thing that we see then is that that God is truly human, truly divine. Secondly, we see this morning that that the Son was sent by the Father to redeem the world. What was was the purpose of all this? Why why is we making such a big deal about the, the Son taking on flesh? What was the point of it? Well, he did this. The reason the Son took on humanity is because he was sent by his Father for the redemption of the world. This idea of being sent is, is another major theme in John's writing. We, we really didn't cover that, uh, but we, I think we've touched on it a couple times. 16 times, 16 times in the Gospel of John, Jesus says that he was sent by the Father. So you'd see this, for instance, in John 3.17. We know John 3.16 that says God gave his son, but John 3.17 says, uh, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but into the in order that the world through him might be saved. God sent his son into the world that it might be saved. Or John 8, 42, Jesus said to him, if God, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. John five thirty six. the father has sent me. First uh, John four fourteen. and we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of 
of the world. This is important, and I just want to maybe stop there for a second because, again, I say this is essential, that, that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God uh, who created this world and then entered into, into this world and took on a human body. You do understand this was the reason that Jesus was crucified. This, this was the claim that led to the cross. Why, why did people want to crucify Jesus? What, what was the charge that was brought against him? It was blasphemy. You, you're a man and you're saying that you're God. You're a man and you're saying you can forgive sin. You, you're a man and you're claiming these things that only God can claim. And that's what led to the cross. And so that's the question. Is, is the son, is Jesus the son who was sent by the father? Well, well, why did the father send the son? Why did the father send the son? In John, 1 John 4, 9 and 10, there's a statement made two times. He says that the father sent the son. And, and in both of those, we, we see kind of a purpose that is given. So let's read 1 John. If you have your Bibles, take them and turn to 1 John chapter 4, uh, verses 9 and 10. And it says this, In this is love, in this is the love of God, was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world. That the Son is the one who was divine, who created the world, and now the Father sent the Son into the world so that, Here's the first reason. Why did the Father send the Son? So that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his Son. Why? To be the propitiation for our sins. So the Father sent the Son into the world to redeem the world. That means, namely, to bring forgiveness for our sins and to grant to us eternal life. And these two things are actually actually related so let's look at them first of all it says that he was sent to be the propitiation for our sins we've talked about this before uh, but but just to spell this out again the word propitiation it has the idea of a sacrifice that removes or appeases the wrath of God for our sin you, you understand the Bible clearly teaches that our sin has invited the righteous anger of God upon us and it will ultimately result in our death. That's why in John 3.36, it says that whoever does not receive Christ, the, the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God abides on him. God is angry with us because of our sins. And now, when I say that, I know people have difficulties in believing that, that God really is angry with us over our sins. That, uh, again, we've got a concept of, of God that is, that is just a God of complete love. Nothing, nothing else. It's just love. And so the idea or the concept that God could be angry or that God could have wrath with us because of our sins is, is very difficult. I think people have three difficulties in particular. One, they have a hard time believing that God could be wrathful at all. That, that view just doesn't fit with a God who's nothing but love. Two, we have a hard time believing that, that we've really done anything bad enough to deserve the wrath of God. And three, the threat of, of judgment and the wrath of God seems so distant and so removed from us that it's just simply easy to dismiss and not believe. But let me just take those in order and, and combat them one by one. First, the Bible is clear that God is wrathful. If you're a Christian here this morning and you believe the Bible, if you, if you don't believe the Bible, then, then you've got some other authority that you're going by, I guess yourself. But, but if you take the Bible to be God's word, then, then it is very clear that God 
is wrathful, that God does have righteous anger, that it's an attribute of God. And it's not just an attribute of God in the Old Testament, it's an attribute of God in the New Testament. God is love, but that love does not exhaust all that he is. He's not nothing but love. God is right to be angry with us over our sins. You, you, you look at the world around us with all of its evil and all of its injustice and all of its brokenness, when you realize that we have contributed to that, not just the people out there, that's what we like to think, the world is so bad. No, no, you and me are so bad. We, we've contributed, we, we've caused and helped make this world that is in complete rebellion against God. You better believe that God has the right to be angry with us because of our sin. Your sin, secondly, may, may seem small to you, but it is a high-handed rebellion. I use that, do you know what that word high-handed means? I, I use that expression a lot when I talk about our sin. Because sometimes we just act, a, we like to act about our sin and it's like, oops, I messed up. But, but high-handed rebellion is when you know it's wrong. You know it's completely wrong. You, you can feel the conviction. You know what God's word says, and you decide I'm going to do it anyway. It's, it's like sometimes with you, your parents. I, I got in trouble sometimes when I was a kid. Maybe you did too. And, and sometimes it was like, oops, I just messed up. I kind of made a mistake, and, and I would get in trouble, but, but not as much. And then there were other times where I knew every bit, I, I had every bit of understanding what I was doing and why I was doing it, and I was trying to get away with it. It was high-handed rebellion, and that's what the Bible says about our sin. God has, has created us with a conscience, and he's put his law in our heart, and, and we know right from wrong, and we choose repeatedly over and over and over again to flout that law and say, I'm going to do my own thing. God is right to be angry with you because of your sin. Third, you may think, well, it seems so distant. It's, that doesn't seem real. This whole spiritual thing and God and a judgment day in the future, that all seems so removed from me. So, sometimes we're like the, the person who smokes, and I know it's going to cause cancer, but the, the idea or the thought of me having cancer in the future, it just seems so distant and so far removed, and I don't see the immediate effects of it right now, so I'm just going to keep doing it because I can't really feel the pressure of, of that uh, cancer right now. And that's the way that we treat the judgment of, of God. It's just so far and so distant, but, but be sure of this. It says, John 3 says that the wrath of God is remaining on you right now. The only reason that you're not experiencing the judgment of God at this moment is because of God's patience and because of God's mercy. But his judgment will come. His wrath will be revealed against your sin. Make no mistake about it. And so God is angry with us because of our sins. And so this idea in John, 1 John 4, 9 and 10 is that the son was sent to be the propitiating sacrifice. He was the one who was, well, it's covered up right now. He was the one who would die on the cross. And as he's dying on the cross, he's taking the wrath of God, the, the anger of God that is there because of your sin and because of, of my sin. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about a propitiating sacrifice. For those who receive Christ, the, the anger of God is removed. There's no threat of, of judgment. But let's look secondly. The second reason that the Son was sent into the world was to give us life. And that's 
That's in verse 9. God sent his son, his only son, into the world so that we might live through him. So that we might live through him. How do we live through Christ? We talked about uh, the fact that we all are going to die. How do we live through Christ? What is he talking about here? Well, we, we just said that we're all sinners. And we know that the Bible clearly teaches that death is the result of sin. At the very beginning, God said, in the day that you rebel against me, Adam and Eve, in the day that you rebel against me and eat this tree which I have told you not to eat of, in that day you will surely die. You will, you will die in the day that you eat of it. And so death is always the punishment for our sins. This is, this is always the way that God expresses that anger that we talked about. The way that he expresses that anger toward our sin is by bringing judgment on us. And the judgment of God on our sin is death. And if God is angry with you, and if his wrath is remaining on you and abiding on you, then death is coming for you. You're dead right now, even as you stand. But, but that death will be manifested one day. The person who remains in their sin and under the wrath of God remains in, de in death. Listen to John, 1 John 3.14. We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brothers, those who have, have faith in Christ, who believe in Christ, and now as a result love one another. We've passed from death into life. But listen to what he says. Whoever does not love, whoever does not love abides in death. You see, as long as we remain in our sin, we remain under the wrath of God, and we remain in a place of death. So the Son of God is sent then, he's sent into the world to die for us, and thereby delivering us from the judgment of God's wrath. You see, our sin leads to God's wrath. God's wrath leads to, to death. And so when Jesus enters the world, he's sent into the world. He absorbs the wrath of God. He stands in our place and takes the wrath of God. And now because there's no longer any wrath, there's no longer any threat of judgment. There's no longer any threat of death. The sacrificial death of Christ removes the obstacle of, of, God's, light, of God's wrath. Life now can be granted to us through the Son precisely because God's wrath, which brings death, has been appeased. So, the, the other thing I think that we see here in, in this text is that that's kind of the obstacle. The obstacle's out of the way. The, the judgment was there. The judgment was that you were to die. But, but now, how do we actually receive life? Well, the, the, the life is given to us through union with the Son, Jesus Christ. Listen to chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5, verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, listen to this, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. The life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God 
does not have life. So on the negative side, the son is sent to take the wrath of God and deliver us from the condemnation of death. But then on the positive side is that when we believe in Christ, we're united to him. Here it says that we have Christ. And when we have Christ, what do we have? We have the son of God who was in the beginning, who is life who is the author and creator and sustainer of all things. And now when you have the son, you have eternal life. We see it as well in John, 1 John 2, 24. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the son and in the father. You will you'll be united to the son and to the father. And this is the promise that he has made to us, eternal life. The way that this can be, the way that you can be granted eternal life is because, as we saw, the Son is the one who has life. He is life. He's eternal life. So if he is the source of life and you're abiding in him, then you too have eternal life. It's clear then that that the way that we receive this, the way that we receive the forgiveness of our sins, the way that we receive this eternal life and we're united to the Son is through faith. 1 John 5.13 says, I write these things to you who believe, who have faith in the name of the Son of the God, that you may know that you have eternal life. When you believe, you're, you're united to Christ and his death is for you so that, so that God's wrath is removed from your sins and then you're united with the one whose life and because you're united to him, You have eternal life. So this is actually related to the fact that that God is both fully divine and fully human, that that the Son, rather, is fully uh, divine and fully human. First of all, he had to be human to bear the wrath of God. That's the way that he died for us. He, he had to be one of us to die for us in, in our place. So, so he had to enter into this world to, in order to be able to die in our place on the cross. But he had to be divine in order to grant to you eternal life. And it's as the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, the, the, the eternal life, the Word of God, that he grants these things to us. So this is practical. I know, I know there's a lot of like theology there and there's a lot of maybe some difficult concepts for you, but, but this is an important reality for you and something that you must confess. This, this is where your sins are forgiven. Uh, these truths are, are, are what grants to you eternal life and the forgiveness of your sins. And, and so I would just close this morning and ask, do you believe? Do you believe in the name of the Son of God? Do you believe that Jesus, this man that lived 2,000 years ago, was actually the Son of God who was there at the beginning of creation and that he entered into this world to die in your place and that by believing in him, you are granted eternal life, forgiven of your sins and given eternal life. This is the message of of the Bible. This very practical. At the end of the day, you can have a good marriage. You you can have better finances. uh, You you can overcome addiction. You can do all of those kind of self-help things that, that, that so often churches are all about. But, but if you don't have life, what does all that, what does all that matter? Right? This, is, this is so important. I would encourage you to consider it this morning. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We are grateful, Lord, 
for your kindness to us, that you would send your son into the world, that we would, that we would be saved, that we would be forgiven of our sins, and that we would be granted eternal life. I pray for each one here this morning, oh God, that, that you would work in their heart. This, this is a difficult thing to believe. And, and in fact, your word tells us, Jesus says in the Gospel of John, that, that no one can come to him unless you, Father, draw them. So I pray that there may be some here this morning who have been able to trek with me and follow through some of these difficult concepts and see clearly what your word says. But, but Lord, their, their heart is, is having a difficult time believing that, that Jesus is the Son of God and that through him they can be forgiven of their sins and granted eternal life. I pray this morning that you would draw them, that you would open their eyes to this truth, and that you would help them to believe and that in believing they would, they would be given life. We ask all of this in the name of Christ. Amen.